You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 20th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Mines Museum hosts spooktacular science events by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Fatal hit-and-run suspect scheduled for October 19th court appearance. Vehicle owner scheduled for November 7th arraignment by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Remember me, rescue Adam. Golden Library patrons prepare sweet offerings for Dia de los Muertos by Corinne Westman for the Jeffco Transcript. Jeffco Board of Education hears updates on possible school closures by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Arvada Fire Protection District opens Station 9 in Candelas, 12,000-foot facility, Arvada's first new station since 1979, set to serve city's northwest area by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Mines Museum hosts Spooktacular Science Event by Corinne Westman. When spooky, scary skeletons send shivers down people's spines, it might be handy to know what kind of skeletons are doing the scary. On October 15th, the Mines Museum of Earth Science hosted its spooktacular, which mixed sweets, scares, and science into a single event. Dozens of youngsters and their families donned costumes to enjoy the hands-on activities and visit the spooky exhibits around the museum. Mr. Bones walked around the museum's exterior, showing off his dinosaur skeleton and chowing down on wayward visitors. Families took pictures with Blaster the Burro, the School of Mines mascot, and Ms. Colorado, and youngsters took home plenty of candy ahead of Halloween. For more information about the museum, visit mines.edu slash museum of earth science. Fatal hit and run suspect scheduled for October 19th court appearance. Vehicle owner scheduled for November 7th arraignment by Corinne Westman. The Denver man who was arrested for a fatal hit and run outside a golden bar is scheduled for another court appearance this week. Ruben Marquez, 29, was arrested on October 9th after he reportedly drove a car into a crowd of people outside the Rock Rest Lodge. One man was killed and several others were injured, including four who were hospitalized. He appeared in court virtually October 14th, where his defense attorney asked for a special hearing to schedule a preliminary hearing for Marquez and assign him a suitable defense attorney. The defense attorney told the court his office should do a conflict check to ensure Marquez has appropriate representation. That hearing is scheduled for 8.30 a.m. October 19th. Marquez is being held at the Jeffco jail without bond, and his defense attorney described how Marquez doesn't intend to speak to law enforcement on this or any case. Additionally, 25-year-old Ernesto Avila, who was, with, who was the vehicle's registered owner and is believed to be a passenger during the October 9th incident, is scheduled for an arraignment and bond reduction hearing at 3.30 p.m. on November 7th. Avila was present in the courtroom after posting a $100,000 cash bond earlier in the week. He was arrested as a possible accessory in the case with Jeffco Sheriff's Office investigators recommending several possible charges against him. However, Avila's attorney noted how the district attorney's office only filed one felony accessory charge against his client and felt the court should consider reducing the $100,000 bond. Avila is expected to enter a plea at the November 7th arraignment. The judge said that victims in the case are welcome to appear either in person or virtually at Avila's and Marquez's next hearings. 
Several Rockrest patrons and employees were injured in the October 9th incident, and 26-year-old Adrian Ponce was killed. Ponce's wife, Ashley Pina, described how she was he was a loving husband and father to their two children and was the family's main provider. She set up a GoFundMe, and as of noon, October 14th, the had raised almost 3000 of the $10,000 goal. <clears throat> he was such a fun, spirited person that lit up the room when he would walk in, Pena described on the GoFundMe page. He was so funny, outgoing, and caring, and was always there for others. Of those who were injured in the October 9th incident, four were transported to the hospital, including two bar employees. Jenny Fulton, a JCSO spokesperson, said October 10th, that one has since been released and the other three have serious injuries but are expected to survive. The arrest affidavits for Marquez and Avila described how the two and another man rode together in Avila's truck to the Rock Rest Lodge on October 8th. They had several mixed drinks throughout the night and reportedly talked to Ponce's group about, quote, about gang issues. Accounts vary on whether the discussion was light banter or more contentious. Around 1.30 a.m. October 9th, a verbal confrontation between Marquez's group and Ponce's group outside reportedly escalated into a fight. Witnesses described a man matching Marquez's description as getting into Avila's white truck and driving it into the crowd. With one witness telling investigators, quote, the way he swerved into people was on purpose. Fulton stated on October 10th that investigators haven't confirmed whether it was a gang-motivated crime, and JCSO doesn't believe any of the parties involved knew each other before their encounter at the Rock Rest Lodge. Remember me, Rescuer Dame. Golden Library. Patrons prepare sweet offerings for Dia de los Muertos by Corinne Westman. As people in Mexico and other countries prepare to celebrate and honor their dead November 1st through 2nd, Jacqueline Ruiz hopes to offer a taste of that tradition for Jeffco Library patrons. On October 12th, Jeffco Library and the Denver-based Museo de las Americas co-hosted a Dia de los Muertos Sugar Skull activity at the Golden Library. The activity will be at other Jeffco Library branches through October 30th. Ruiz described how Dia de los Muertos originated in Mexico thousands of years ago and has evolved and spread to other countries over the centuries. While celebrations look a little different from place to place, Ruiz emphasized how it's about taking time to honor deceased loved ones. Sometimes that involves feasting, singing, dancing, and creating sugar skulls called calaveras. Ruiz told the 20 participants at the Golden Library that each sugar skull is meant to represent someone who's died and is painted with designs specific to that person. For instance, she described making one for her grandma with red lipstick and yellow flowers, which were her grandma's favorite. Ruiz, who's from Venezuela, said she didn't grow up with the holiday, but has started celebrating it since moving to the United States four years ago. It's become a healthy way to talk about death without feeling sad or intimidated, she described, adding... Helps starts conversations with children, quote, about what passing away means. It feels super weird at first, she said of celebrating the holiday, but you connect with other people about it. For the activity, Ruiz brought pre-made sugar skulls along with paints and sequins to use for decoration. Both children and adults enjoyed customizing their sugar skulls, although the youngster's first instinct was to eat the sugar rather than decorate it. Melissa Gainitz, who brought her two children and one of their friends, said they signed up for the activity because, quote, it's a lovely way to celebrate those we've lost. Gainitz described how her family frequents the children's and family programming at the library, saying, quote, it makes the children want to be in the library more often. Kristen Ludwig, her five-year-old son Nolan, and their friends also enjoyed painting the sugar skulls. Ludwig said she and Nolan each made one to honor her mom, who died two years ago from cancer. She appreciated how Dia de los Muertos traditions are about, quote, celebrating and connecting with loved ones we've lost. 
Ludwig also thought the October 12th Sugar Skulls activity would be an opportunity to talk to Nolan more about his grandma. In general, she added, it seemed like a more approachable way for children to connect with loss. As the holiday gains more tradition in the United States, Ruiz hoped to see Coloradans embrace it. She invited anyone interested to visit Museo de las Americas, the Museum of the Americas, on November 4th for a Dia de los Muertos celebration. For more information, visit museo.org, M-U-S-E-O.org, to participate in the Sugar Skulls activity at another Jeffco Library branch. Visit jeffcolibrary.org. Jeffco Board of Education hears updates on possible school closures by Andrew Fraley. With the Jeffco Board of Education vote on whether to consolidate elementary schools approaching on November 10th, the board heard another update on how closures would affect enrollment, students, staff, and transportation. Lisa Rallau, Chief of Communications and Strategy for Jefferson County Public Schools, highlighted specific questions she said had come up at multiple community meetings. One is parents feeling that a decision has already been made, a sentiment made at the first Emory Elementary community meeting. Quote, While the district's recommendation to the board won't be changing between now and November 10th, of course, every board member has a vote in this process, said Rilau. Other questions were why there was one vote rather than 16, one for each school, which Rilau said was to make the process as equitable as possible. She also said community members can make their feelings known to the board by writing to individual board members and speaking at public comments, including on the day of the vote. On enrollment, Rilau stressed that students currently enrolled by both Boundary and Choice would have a guaranteed place at their new school. Doing nothing at all would auto-enroll students to the accepting school, and through the enrollment process, parents will have support from Jeffco faculty trained in the process. Quote, they will be a point of contact for our families. They will bridge the gap between our families and the internal enrollment system. Most importantly, they will be there to help families discuss their options, elaborated Rilau. Rilau also highlighted Jeffco's transportation rules, which gave which give bus transport if walking distance is more than one mile, and safety considerations such as highways, railroad crossings, and roads with speed limits higher than 40 miles per hour that would also grant bus transport. Specific distances and safety considerations for every school can be found in the presentation. In terms of staff impact, Jeffco did a survey of about 300 staff members that would be affected and found 85% wanted to continue working in Jeffco. But their most important concern was not necessarily moving into the accepting school. In all the communities, we've heard families say they want their teachers to be able to go with them to the receiving school. But that's not necessarily of the highest importance to our teachers, said Rallau, according to the survey. Remaining at the elementary's teaching level was one of the highest concern to the most, with working near where they live the next important. For the majority of staff, but not all, teaching in the accepting school was not important. A common question Rilau pointed out is why the closing school staff have to reapply for jobs while the receiving school staff does not. Quote, those schools that are closing, those roles are going away. In the receiving schools, those are positions that are staying. They aren't changing. So those folks in them still have a right to those jobs, she said. Jeffco Board of Education President Stephanie Shuley asked whether the timing of hiring and knowing how many positions are open at receiving schools will line up. You don't really know how much staff you have until you know how many kids you have and what grades you have them in, Jennifer Jones, the Jeffco Public Schools Chief Human Resources Officer, responded. She continued that principals will need to develop a, a budget and how many teachers they do or don't need. The rough timeline, she explained, is budgeting in January and February and job postings, hiring, selections, and matching to schools in February as well. Also briefly spoken on was a hiring freeze from outside hires, possibly through March or April, according to Jones. Jeffco Public Schools Superintendent Tracy Dorland added that the board was also entertaining the idea of early notification bonuses for those deciding to leave Jeffco, allowing more time to know if there's a space for impacted staff. 
Some closing schools still have a second community meeting ahead, but after those will be one-hour public hearings in front of the Board of Education on October 24th through 27th and on November 2nd and 3rd. Sign up to speak will open five days prior to the date of the hearing and speakers will be heard in order of sign up. Rilau elaborated that the first seven spots will be reserved for current staff and family affected by the possible closures and they estimate enough time for 15 minutes speak for 15 speakers with three minutes to speak each. Arvada Fire Protection District opens Station 9 in Candelas. The 12,000-foot facility is Arvada's first new station since 1979, set to serve city's northwest area by Riley Dunn. Residents of Candelas and West Arvada have a new safeguard against the brush fires that have been threatening the area. The Arvada Fire Protection District opened its newest fire station, Station 9, on October 8th. The 12,000-foot station is located at 9276 Wilkerson Court, near Highway 72 and Candelas Parkway, and will serve Candelas and the northwest corner of Arvada Fire Service Area. Station 9 is the first new Arvada fire station since 1979 and is equipped with an advanced life support fire engine and a brush truck, specific, specifically equipped to fight wildfires. Arvada Fire Chief Mike Piper praised Station 9 and highlighted the improved response times the station will provide to Northwest Arvada. We are thrilled to celebrate the opening of our ninth fire station, which will save lives by reducing response times to emergencies in the region, Piper said. The new station is strategically located, environmentally friendly, and designed and built in a fiscally responsible manner. Other features of the station include a 40-kilowatt solar power system to reduce the carbon footprint and energy use of the building, a decontamination corridor to limit firefighters' exposure to carcinogens, a new alert system designed to reduce psychological stress of responding to nighttime emergencies, and a 1,100-foot firehouse gym. Colorado begins Mount Evans renaming process. The mountain, named after a man who contributed to the genocide of indigenous people, is getting a new name. By Olivia Jewell Love. The Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board has begun the decision-making process of changing the name of Mount Evans. The board met on October 11th for the first meeting regarding the name change of the mountain. Indigenous community members and tribal representatives gave presentations at the meeting to inform the board and public about the significance of changing the name. Mount Evans was named after Colorado Territorial Governor John Evans, who set the framework in 1864 to start the Sand Creek Massacre, which killed hundreds of indigenous people who were living on, quote, safe land. Dr. Andy Message a historian with the Heinz History Center, present at the meeting, explained the harrowing details of the massacre. Quote, This was genocide in its most complete sense, he said. Tribal representatives and descendants from the Sand Creek Massacre told accounts of the massacre that claimed the lives of over 230 men, women, and children. One participant, Otto Braided Hair Jr., was only able to be present for the meeting because his great-grandmother escaped the massacre on horseback. This first meeting of the Naming Advisory Board was not open to public comment, but supporters sounded off in the comments with messages of support for a name change. The next meeting of the board will be on November 17th, where board members will hear proposals for several different names. Chef celebrates Dia de los Muertos with recipes. Oscar Padilla honors his family traditions. By Julio Sandoval and Sonia Gutierrez, Rocky Mountain PBS. During Dia de los Muertos, Oscar Padilla honors his grandmother Gloria. Quote, She showed me the basics to celebrate and incorporate all these components in food to receive and welcome our family after they pass away, said Padilla. 
Padilla is originally from Los Angeles, California, but said at one point in his life he went to live with his grandmother in Mexico City. This changed my life, he said. It gave me the opportunity to discover my blood, my family, in Mexico, and all the traditions they have at that amazing country. Padilla is now the executive chef at Toro, a Cherry Creek restaurant that features a ceviche bar, small plates, and family-style entrees. Toro shares authentic Latin ingredients, international flavors, and artful dishes. While in Mexico, Padilla was first introduced to a career in the kitchen. His first teacher, Gloria. She showed me the traditional techniques to make mocajete, salsa, moles, traditional dishes to celebrate the specific parties or traditions that Mexico has, he explained. Those recipes, Padilla said, have been passed down in his family from generation to generation. Quote, these traditions are to celebrate them, but it's also to celebrate us too, added Padilla. Prior to his role as executive chef at Toro, Padilla was a culinary trainer for Richard Sandoval Hospitality. He helped open more than 15 new restaurants in the United States, Dubai, Qatar, Mexico, and Costa Rica. Padilla also has a passion for training as aspiring chefs never forgetting his Mexican roots and traditions. A lot of people are so scared of death, he said, but in Mexico, we celebrate with the dead. It's to celebrate and share and be happy because at some point you are in communion again. You remember your family and you are there on that day. Dia de los Muertos is celebrated November 1st through 2nd every year, primarily in Mexico, but also by others around the world, including some in the United States. The holiday is rooted in Aztec culture, where the dead are the guests of honor. The ceremony is like a family reunion that helps people remember the deceased and celebrate their memory. Through the years, people have developed different combinations of the fundamental traditions, which most often include setting up a candlelit altar so spirits can find their way back to their relatives. The altar includes food and items that were important to the one who passed. Families then often gather in the graveyard for a big party that includes a huge feast, cleaning the tombstones, singing songs, and talking to their ancestors. It's something we need to respect, and we want to share it, not only with the people in Mexico, but we want to share it with everybody around the world, said Padilla. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. Meet the Colorado Moms Who Microdose Mushrooms by Allison Berg, Brian Willie, Rocky Mountain PBS. Tracy T. felt stuck when COVID-19 hit in 2020. T. lost her business and the sudden shift in her children's schooling meant more responsibilities at home. Plus, the lack of in-person community left her feeling isolated from any support. Under the crushing weight of raising children in a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, T was willing to try anything to lift at least some of her spirits. After reading Michael Pollan's, quote, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And attending a webinar on microdosing mushrooms, T thought she'd give the practice a try. T had never experimented with illicit drugs, but from what she had heard, the experience of taking a small dose of psilocybin mushrooms seemed different from the 60s-style psychedelic trip the substance is best known for. Once she took the plunge and swallowed her first capsule of a ground-up mushroom, T knew she'd found her aid to life's stress. I just really felt a calm and a space between my world that I hadn't felt before, T said. In the same way that you take an antidepressant, that's what microdosing is. During the first several doses, T said she felt like she'd taken a hefty dose of caffeine with slightly more energy and ease going about her day. But over time, T said she was able to process trauma and cope with anxiety in ways she'd never been able to before. It helps you bring your PTSD, your trauma, your anxiety, any issues that you have to the surface. You kind of look it right in the face, T said. It's just easier to show up in life a little bit happier. 
As she continued her microdosing journey, T said most of the folks she found with the same interest in microdosing were not mothers. They were primarily younger folks or CEOs of popular companies. For T, the product was simply about making mundane life slightly easier, especially for her fellow mothers. After connecting with other women interested in the idea, T started Moms on Mushrooms, a Colorado-based nationwide group that teaches interested moms about using a small dose of psilocybin mushrooms. Shayna Bryan, a Denver woman and a member of Moms on Mushrooms, began microdosing in April after an initial class from T's group. Bryan said the other moms in the group seemed to mirror her struggles as a parent, which is what ultimately made her feel safe enough to try microdosing. Quote, everyone has to kind of deal with the same challenges when it comes to motherhood, and all of us were kind of looking for something, Brian said. It was really wonderful to watch the other women in the course see the medicine start to work. Brian and T both emphasized that the micro-mushroom experience is not a trip, but a very subtle mood booster. That energy that I'd wished I'd had for the last 15 years has come forth and it's a vibrancy that I feel so lucky to have found Brian said you don't feel like you're in a college and you just took a bunch of mushrooms and you're tripping with your friends Courtney a mother in Colorado who asked not to have her full name used said microdosing is on its own is hardly a noticeable difference in her day and the real benefits come from meditation journaling Another healing work alongside the mushrooms. What I like to say is it kind of makes you 10% of something, 10% happier, 10% more patient, 10% more creative, 10% more open, Courtney said. For me, microdosing allows me to address some mental health challenges. While anecdotal experiences have yielded positive results, research on psychedelic usage is limited because such the drugs are illegal at a federal level. Denver voters decriminalized mushrooms in 2019 within the city limits, but purchasing the substance remains illegal. Possessing mushrooms is still prohibited in parts of Colorado outside of Denver. In efforts to invite research and make psilocybin more accessible to the general population, Coloradans will vote on the Natural Medicine Health Act, which would create regulated access to mushrooms. While users and advocates of the medicine say they are proponents of its decriminalization, many will vote no on the bill as it is written as they believe its sponsors have not kept racial equity in mind. Quote, this could be cannabis 5.0 with the same people in charge and the lack of equity. So I'm very cautious when it comes to how we do this, said Melanie Rose Rogers, a Denver resident and psychedelic advocate who helped with Denver's decriminalization efforts. I'm not opposed to legalization. I'm opposed to this legalization that's being rushed. Rose Rogers, a woman of color, said people of color have been using mushrooms and cannabis for thousands of years and have been de- and have been criminalized for it, while white business owners have profited from legalization. My perspective in this comes from social justice. It comes from watching what happens when you legalize in Colorado, Rose Rogers said. I am cautious about what we do with psychedelics. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS. Homelessness on rise in Denver area. Survey shows numbers increased by nearly 13% since 2020. By Amanda Horvath of Rocky Mountain PBS. Nearly 800 more people in the Denver metro area were experiencing homelessness on a single night than that same night two years ago. The Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, MDHI, has recently released its full data of its annual point-in-time count. The organization creates an annual effort in January to count the number of those experiencing homelessness to understand the scope and demographics of the homeless population. This year's count took place on January 24th and included people in shelters and living outdoors in seven counties, Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, Douglas, and Jefferson. The count found... 6,884 people were experiencing homelessness on that night. The year before, the PIT didn't include those living outdoors because of COVID-19 concerns. In 2020, 
the count found 6,104 people living unhoused. That's a 12.8% increase over two years. Quote, while this count can help us understand homelessness on a single night, getting to a place where we have comprehensive, real-time data regionally is the ultimate goal, said Jamie Reif, the director of MDHI. Each year when the count takes place, trained volunteers and staff are dispatched around the metro area to survey anyone they find who are unhoused using a standard set of questions. Over the course of several months, that data is compiled into this report. Looking further into whether into where people were found, the majority, 70%, were in shelters, according to the report. A number that remained nearly the same from 2020. While the number of unsheltered homelessness increased by nearly 500 people from pre-pandemic levels to 2,078. The majority of those found in this count were also found within the county of Denver at 4,794 individuals. MDHI admits there are a number of factors that could affect the count, including weather, how well the volunteers are engaged, and how well the subjects of the survey interact with the staff and volunteers. The encouraging news from the point in time is the number of veterans experiencing homelessness did drop by 31% in the last two years. Quote, the region's emphasis on reducing veteran homelessness is yielding results, said Rife. Veterans are typically overrepresented among the homeless population and typically represent 9% of the total unhoused population. This year's pit count found only 432 veterans, which is less than 1% of the total unhoused population. Also within the data on the metro area homelessness is a breakdown of race showing an overrepresentation of people of color among the unhoused. About 20% in the count identify as black, African-American, or African, while only making up about 6% of the population in those seven counties. A similar difference can also be found among those who identify as American Indian, Alaska Native, or Indigenous, with 6% among this pit count and only make up for 1.4% of the census for the area. Quote, the overrepresentation of people of color, specifically black and Native Americans, among those experiencing homelessness, is critical to the response, Reif explained. Homelessness is an issue of race and must be approached through this lens, she added. The harsh racial realities of homelessness stem from long-standing historical and structural racism that has not improved over time. This includes but isn't limited to segregation, housing discrimination, and access to quality health care. Part of the recommendations from the National Alliance to End Homelessness to help improve these disparities is to first collect and assess more accurate data. This is something MDHI is working toward beyond these pit data collections. Providers, cities, and others in Colorado are working together to improve participation with the region's homeless management information system to make data accessible each day on those experiencing homelessness. Quote, this data highlights the dynamic nature of homelessness and the importance of real-time data to allow the region to coordinate effectively and allocate resources efficiently, said Reif. This summer, Boulder became the first community in the area to reach quality data for all singles, which means accounting for every single adult experiencing homelessness by name in real time. The data from this pit survey will also be used by MDHI to release its annual State of Homelessness report next January. Estimates show that these numbers close to 31,000 people in this seven-county region experience homelessness in one year. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, used by permission. Wheat Ridge residents protest accessory dwelling units ordinance. Passed in July in a referendum by residents deemed insufficient being protested, the city appoints judge for ordinance hearing by Andrew Frilly. Wheat Ridge residents are trying to reverse the ordinance that legalized accessory dwelling units just this summer by the Wheat Ridge City Council. In July, the council passed an ordinance amending city laws to legalize accessory dwelling units, smaller independent residential units on the same lot as a primary residence, sometimes called granny flats. A petition circulated to put repealing that law on the ballot. 
But according to the city of Wheat Ridge City Clerk Steve Kirkpatrick, there were not enough signatures. On October 4th, that decision was officially protested by six residents. Carol Matthews, Robert Brazell, Odarka Figlis, Ehor Figlis, Dorothy Archer, and Vivian Voss. On the grounds that the required number of signatures calculated by Kirkpatrick was wrong. This will lead to an administrative hearing at the council on October 10th appointed Judge Paul Basso as hearing officer for the proceedings. According to the amending ordinance, the council adopted these regulations allowing ADUs in the city because, quote, they can play an important role in addressing housing need, affordability, and intergenerational households, as well as increasing types of housing options and the community's consistent support for them the last six years. Quote, I'm excited that Wheat Ridge is looking to join other communities in the Denver metro area and across the nation and allowing this affordable option for residents to stay in the community, said Mandy Watrascale, a Wheat Ridge resident, at the July 11th City Council meeting, Council public comment, where the council passed the ordinance. Quote, housing is becoming unaffordable for many in the community, she continued. Carol Matthews, one of the residents who protested Kirkpatrick's signature calculations, spoke as well, fearing utilities being overstressed, too many cars on the streets, and, quote, the general quality of living being downgraded. Quote, the definition of a strong family is a household with people with high potential for earning income and nurturing families, she said. The date of the hearing must be five to ten days after Kirkpatrick mails a notice of protest to the petition representatives. The exact date has not yet been announced. Q&A with Denver's only paranormal investigators. Brian Bonner tells the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society operates. By Andrew Fraley. <clears throat> Brian Bonner and Bob Lewis are the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society. They've investigated hauntings of invisible jellyfish, alien voyeurs, and ghosts, but one was a bad mix of medication and alcohol, another a rubber mask, and many other noisy pipes or leaky toilets. Operating for almost 23 years, they have not seen a ghost yet. Most of their investigations, as Bonner explained, is finding rational explanations for paranormal-seeming events, bringing many clients more at ease with their own homes. Below is a Q&A with Bonner, edited for brevity and clarity. Jeffco transcript. You focus heavily on the scientific method for investigating. What does that look like for you? Brian Bonner. We do follow this scientific process as best as we can, but when you try to apply it to something as weird as a ghost hunting, it's difficult to apply. We definitely try to apply it as much as we can, but our main goal isn't as much as to investigate something as a ghost investigation, as much as say, quote, what have the claims been, and how can we look up at those claims to come up with a rational explanation? We need to work through the normal before we can ever get to the paranormal. Going in specifically trying to find a ghost gives you kind of a weird bias, whereas going and thinking, what are the specific claims? What have people seen, and what can we do to see if we can witness, document, replicate it? Based off that, we start our investigation. Transcript. Do clients normally reach out to you? How does that generally work? Brian Bonner. I always like to tell people, we're like vampires. We come where we're invited, whether it's a public space or a private residence. Generally, people track us down and say, I've got this story, or I have this going on, and I'd really like you to come look into it and see what you can come up with. We haven't found a ghost, but boy, it would be cool if we did. To be that first person to say we actually found a ghost, that would be amazing. But we want to be credible enough that when we do and have something that's unusual and we go to the scientific community and say, hey, we want somebody to come take a look at this, they actually take us seriously. Transcript. You mention even non-skeptics get frustrated with you. How so? Bonner. We do have cases of going to a location and maybe something does happen. It's kind of frustrating for a lot of people because we will keep investigating it until we come up with some sort of an answer. Or even just, we don't know what it was. I would love to be able to say with 100% accuracy, 
I know that you have a ghost. However, nobody has a 100% proven what ghosts are, if they exist at all. So if I go in and tell somebody that you absolutely have a ghost, I have to prove it. I have to have proof of it. Jeffco transcript. What does it mean to you to be a skeptic? Bonner. The word skeptic has, over the past couple of decades, unfortunately, taken on a new definition. A skeptic, if you actually look it up in the dictionary, is someone who is open to all possible explanations based on the data collected. Now you have cynical, which can be thrown on either side, and that's really what the slang skeptic means nowadays. Rational thinking goes with skepticism, so we're desperately trying to cling on to that word because it means so much, but it has a questionable definition at this point. Transcript. Is there a point where you have to come to a conclusion that there are no ghosts? Bonner. In short, you aren't being truly skeptical if you can jump to a conclusion that just because you examine X amount of cases, they don't exist. However, it is definitely frustrating with something like that. There's something, there's something causing these cases, even if we're investigating these cases for nothing more than the psychology behind it to see how people are interpreting things both for research and being able to help people who are truly having an issue. When somebody has a perceived paranormal event, real or otherwise, it takes away their power over their life. It really makes them feel out of control. And that's one of the few things that people really have and hold onto that keeps them together. So when they lose that, it really tears them apart from the ground up. Being able to get somebody and say, here's a rational explanation, we'll work with you on this. They come back and thank us because the rest of their life is coming back together as they aren't so overwhelmed with that. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Texas Court Gets First-Hand Look at Homeless Solutions with Boulder's Feet Forward by Jennifer Livovic. From Denverite, I'll be reading, DPS has banned a co-founder of its HBCU-style high school from campus and terminated his volunteer role by Rebecca Tauber. And even more development may be coming to the site of Southeast Denver's Creepy Cameron Motel by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Secrets of Gang-Related Murder Charges Against the Rodarte Brothers by Michael Roberts. And Paul Donovan, Denver country radio favorite on his jump to KUVO Jazz, also by Michael Roberts. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Texas Court Gets First-Hand Look at Homeless Solutions with Boulder's Feet Forward by Jennifer Levovic. When Jennifer Levovic was experiencing homelessness, she learned firsthand how difficult it can be to, to know where to turn for help. In Boulder County, there are a plethora of valuable resources available to those experiencing homelessness, but they're essentially useless unless people know how to take advantage of them. Once Levovic learned to navigate the system and was able to secure a home, she made it her mission to help others do the same. She founded Feet Forward, a Boulder County nonprofit organization that meets those experiencing homelessness where they are by providing an umbrella of services and resources to those experiencing homelessness. We are the only nonprofit in the area based on a lived experience of homelessness, said Levovic. Many of the people I see at our Tuesday events are people I knew from the street. It started with just me passing out socks and has quickly grown to meet a number of needs. Feet Forward's weekly Tuesday events at the Boulder Bandshell offer food, clothing, and access to resources for the homeless community. This week, Feet Forward hosted the Boulder County Community Court Program, as well as representatives from a similar program in Austin, Texas. These municipal programs are designed to help people experiencing homelessness address tickets for low-level offenses, like campy violations, while connecting them with social services. The team from Austin was observing Boulder County's remote model, which helps meet people where they are. Community events, like Feet Forwards, provide a safe and reliable space for people to access beneficial programs. 
We're the provider that makes connecting to these services possible for many. That connection can sometimes be overlooked within the system, said Levovic. Our focus is on building trust and relationships within the community so that we can help people. After all, if people don't know what resources are available or where to go to access them, they can't use them. Without these connections, the system can't work. The next two articles are from Denverite. DPS has banned a co-founder of its HBCU-style high school from campus and terminated his volunteer role by Rebecca Tauber. Denver Public Schools, DPS, has banned Brandon Pryor, co-founder of Robert F. Smith's STEAM Academy, RFSS, from attending events and entering most school buildings and terminated his role as DPS volunteer and football coach. The letter DPS sent prior Tuesday cites repeated abusive, bullying, threatening, and intimidating conduct directed at staff of the Denver Public Schools as the reasoning behind the ban. The letter calls the language inappropriate, harmful, and in violation of DPS policies. Denverite obtained the letter through open, open records request, and in its response, DPS included numerous screenshots of Pryor's text messages, social media posts, and other interactions, many of which call for resignations and firings, and some of which include expletives and strong language toward school officials. In one social media message interaction, Pryor allegedly wrote, When I see you, you're going to have a problem. He continued, I swear on my kids. Wait till I see you. When reached by phone Friday, Pryor declined to comment. A student organized protest at Smith Academy in support of him is planned for later today. Pryor has been a steady vocal presence at DPS meetings about how he believes the district needs to do more for Smith Academy, a new school that opened in 2021 aimed at serving students of color in the style of historically black colleges and universities, HBCU. Both Pryor and his wife and fellow school co-founder, Samantha Pryor, posted publicly on Facebook about the ban. Brandon Pryor called it a retaliation tactic and an attempt to infringe on his First Amendment right to free speech. They thought I was going to be quiet, he wrote on Facebook Thursday. Samantha posted Wednesday that the district's ban is egregious and clearly retaliation against Brandon for speaking up against DPS and engaging in his First Amendment free speech rights. She continued to say, Brandon has spent the last five years tirelessly serving and advocating for our children and community. She has received numerous comments in support of Brandon, who is also involved in efforts to reopen Montbello High. The letter comes after weeks of controversy over Smith Academy's school building. The school shares a converted office building with Montbello Career and Technical High School. Smith Academy advocates, including Pryor, say the site isn't what the DPS promised and that it lacks vital necessities, including a kitchen for hot meals, a library, and a gym that can host competitions. Smith Academy advocates hope that the school will have their own sports teams in time, but that would require a proper gymnasium. Nothing about this is equitable, Pryor said at a DPS meeting in September. If you don't know how to create equity for black students, do what you're doing for the white ones. Superintendent Alex Marrero issued a letter Tuesday responding to the complaints. He said that 38 DPS schools lack kitchens and use meal deliveries and warming tables, and that DPS has dedicated a multi-use space in the building for books and resources. He also said students can participate in regional sports programs and at Montbello High School once the regional program dissolves in 2024, and that a request for an athletics program is under consideration by the Colorado High School Activities Association. Marrero also noted that because of the school's small student body and enrollment agreements when the school was formed, Smith Academy has the second highest per pupil funding among DPS high schools. The letter says the initial class consists of 60 to 70 students, but is funded at a level for 100 students. Advocates say it's not enough. When Smith Academy was first planned, the district promised them their own facility that could accommodate the school. According to reporting by Chalkbeat, district staff said they looked for a different building for Smith Academy and couldn't find one, and that advocates are focused too much on the building. 
The district originally planned to close Montbello to make more space for Smith Academy in the original building, a solution neither school supported. Thursday night, Marrero changed his recommendation and DPS decided to keep Montbello open. It's a beautiful building, but it's not a school building, Samantha Pryor said at the September meeting. That is what you all promised to do as a board, not sneak us into a co-located situation and then close the school and try to make us stay there. According to the letter sent to Pryor, an unnamed DPS school principal brought allegations that prompted the district's investigation. DPS's investigation cites many of Brandon Pryor's Facebook posts, many of which include calls by name for resignations of DPS staff at Montbello High School and elsewhere, complaints about school food, and allegations of racism. The letter also references comments made by Pryor on Brother Jeff's podcast telling people not to enroll students in Montbello High School and claims by a principal that he referred to her as a plantation builder, among other names. The examples cited by the investigation date back to 2020 and include prior complaints and information from similar investigations in February of 2022 and November of 2021. One investigation quoted text messages with a DPS staff member that included strong language and reports of alleged comments such as, I'm going to make sure that you're fired, and if you come after me, I'm coming after you. Both previous investigations determined that Pryor had engaged in unprofessional behavior. In addition to banning Pryor from DPS buildings, the letter also retracts an exception he received to the district's background check policy due to a previous felony conviction and misdemeanor assault charges. The retraction prevents Pryor from volunteering and coaching in the future. DPS has also banned Pryor from attending board meetings and public comment sessions for the 2022-2023 school year. He can still submit written comments, call and email school board members, attend public events, and enter buildings and events at the schools his children attend. Pryor has 30 days to submit an appeal. Even more development may be coming to the site of Southeast Denver's Creepy Cameron Motel by Kyle Harris. The now-demolished zero-star Cameron Motel at 4500 East Evans Avenue in University Hills is remembered as nasty, infected with bedbugs, and sticky. Travelers recall a pit bull lunging at them from behind the counter. They suffered from itchy feet and welts. Some tried to get their money back and spend the night in their car, but the Cameron Motel had a strict no-refunds policy. I wouldn't have my worst enemy sleep at this motel, wrote one reviewer on TripAdvisor. The retro sign still stands on the 3.61-acre site at 2160 South Claremont Street alongside Evans Avenue, where the ill-remembered motel, motel once sat. But it may not be empty for long. A developer has submitted plans to the city to build a new seven-story, 208-unit apartment complex. The new residences would be the second phase of the nearby luxury apartment complex, simply called the Cameron. A concept plan, the first step in proposing a new development, has been submitted to Denver Community Planning and Development for the 3.61-acre site at 2160 South Claremont Street alongside Evans Avenue. The plans were submitted by Kimley Horn for the real estate investment firm Cypress Real Estate Advisors, who did not respond to requests for comment. Cypress Real Estate Advisors is based in Austin, Texas, and has properties in 17 cities across the country. The company has developed or owns more than 25,000 multifamily homes and master-planned lots for 16,000 single-family homes, according to its website. Other Denver sites include Denargo Market in the River North Art District. Cypress serves as developer and or property manager for its buildings and was a force behind the original Cameron, which includes 30 studio, 239 one-bedroom, and 92 two-bedroom apartments for rent. If approved and built, the newly proposed building, called Cameron 2, would also include 215 parking spaces, bike storage, a co-working space, a gym, a clubhouse, a pocket park, and a dog washing area. 
The Cameron is hardly the first large-scale multifamily development in the University Hills neighborhood. Deco and Denver lofts and condos and the Wilshire Apartments are nearby on South Colorado Boulevard, and a new development is in the works at the University Hills YMCA. The following articles are from Westward. Secrets of Gang-Related Murder Charges Against the Rodarte Brothers by Michael Roberts. The Denver District Attorney's Office announced this week that a grand jury had indicted brothers Sergio Rodarte Jr., 24, and Andrew Rodarte, 23, for the reportedly gang-related murders of 20-year-old Mauricio Mars Negrete and 22-year-old Josiah Salas in May of 2021. But much about the case and the reason it's suddenly making news remains secret. Westward included the killings of Negrete and Salas in a post about the first 100 gun deaths of 2021. But beyond that item and a few briefs from local media outlets, the slayings received little public notice. And the same was true of the Denver Police Department's announcement in June of 2021 that Sergio Rodarte had been arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder in connection with the incident. The DPD made no mention of Andrew Rodarte at the time, however, and more than a year of silence about the case followed before the October 18th announcement. Even now, the DA's office is closely guarding information about the crimes. Spokesperson Carolyn Tyler says the Rodarte's arrest affidavits are sealed and declines further comment because this matter is now pending before the court. The indictment itself is the only document that's been publicly shared, and it leaves plenty of questions unaddressed. The earliest reference to both brothers currently accessible online is a public notice about a Douglas County court date to determine if they were victims of neglect. It appeared in the Parker Chronicle and the Highlands Ranch Herald in September of 2013, when they were both still juveniles. But the indictment contains a list of previous run-ins with the law to support eight of the 12 charges against them, the ones pertaining to possession of a weapon by a previous offender. According to the affidavit, Andrew was convicted of vehicular eluding in 2015 and felony escape in January of 2017. Sergio was convicted of second-degree assault causing serious bodily injury and second-degree assault causing injury with a deadly weapon in 2019. In addition, on or about April 17th or April 18th, 2021, Sergio and Andrew and various members of OTF, only the family identified as a Denver-based gang, were present at Barnum Park, while at the park, Sergio and Andrew posed for pictures holding firearms in various stances. The four most serious accusations about the Rodartes pertain to two counts each of first-degree murder after deliberation and first-degree murder extreme indifference. Supporting them is a narrative section that begins on May 1, 2021, at a house party at a single-family residence on North Odessa Street, where Negrete, Salas, and the Rodartes were among approximately 50 people gathered there. The indictment contends that the brothers both carried semi-automatic weapons equipped with lights and or lasers. The indictment identifies Negrete as a member of another Denver gang, CHI-30, which allegedly had an ongoing conflict with OTF members that spanned months before May 1, 2021. When the Rodartes heard Negrete was on the back patio of the house, they both put on blue hospital gloves, Sergio put on a surgical mask and pulled up his hoodie, and Andrew pulled his hoodie on so tightly that his face was barely visible. Shortly thereafter, according to the affidavit, the Rodartes got into a verbal argument with Negretti that prompted both of them to pull out their firearms, and after blocking the patio door so that no one could enter or leave, Sergio fired eight times, striking Negretti and Salas in the back, among other places. Given the straightforward nature of this account, it's unclear why nearly 18 months passed between the killings and the indictments, particularly since Sergio Roderti was taken into custody mere weeks after the crime, and answers won't be immediately forthcoming. The Rodartis aren't scheduled to appear in court until December 9th, and the subject is a bond hearing at which additional details are unlikely to be shared. Paul Donovan, Denver Country Radio favorite on his jump to KUVO Jazz 
by Michael Roberts. Jazz Radio KUVO, a subsidiary of nonprofit Rocky Mountain Public Media at 89.3 FM, has been shaken by controversy after the exits of four longtime hosts, Rodney Franks, Susan Gatchett, Matthew Goldwasser, and Janine Santana, over the past six months. Critics have worried that the station's musical approach is being watered down in a revenue-driven quest for a younger audience, which management denies. Now, a notable new personality has joined the KUVO team. Paul Donovan, a radio veteran who spent most of the past three decades in the Denver market, most prominently with country giant KYGO. And while Donovan has presented many types of tunes beyond country and western over his career, KUVO marks his first gig with a jazz specialist. This background may concern critics of the direction that KUVO has taken since program director Max Ramirez arrived earlier earlier this year. But there's no denying that Donovan is blessed with